If you please turn in your Bibles to the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 3. We're going to start at verse 16, which is kind of seems strange because it's right in the middle of a passage there. But we're going to start at verse 16, and then we're going to go through chapter 4, verse 11. So we're taking a little bit of a break because of Reformation Day from our study in, in 1 Corinthians. Lord willing, we'll be back there next week. And some of you remember, may have remember four years ago at the 500th anniversary of the Protestant Reformation, uh, Travis's idea was that we would, Travis and Jeremiah and I, we preached five messages and did Sunday school uh, ser- um, uh, lessons on the five solas of the Reformation. So we talked about sola scriptura, sola gratia, sola fide, solus Christos, and sola Deo gloria. And I remember I opened that sermon four years ago with a sermon on sola scriptura. And this is the foundation. Sola scriptura is the foundation of the authority in the church. It's scripture alone. Well, today I'm basically going to re-preach this sermon. I, I expanded some areas. You'd be glad to know I cut some areas out of what I pre- originally preached in it. But I'm basically going to follow the same outline that I did in 2017. Because I think this is a message that we still need to hear. It's, it's still relevant. It's probably even more relevant today than it was as we celebrate this Reformation Day. So it's 500 years ago, 504 years ago, on October 31st, 1517, Martin Luther nailed the, his 95 theses. These were theological statements to, to start a theological debate. He, he nailed these to the door of the Castle Church in Wittenberg, Germany. And this launched the Protestant Reformation. These theses were, were reproduced. The, the, the printing press was a new invention. And it went all throughout Europe, sparking this, this Protestant Reformation. And what the Reformation really was, it was a rediscovery. It was a discovery of these beautiful biblical doctrines that were sadly uh, hidden. They were obscured in the medieval church. And central to the Reformation is the gospel. Is the question, how can us as, as sinful men and women, how could we be made right with a holy God? How can this happen? This was Luther's struggle. This is what drove him really almost to the, to the verge of, of madness. <clears throat> and this is our question that we have 504 years later. How can we, again, as sinful men and women, how can we be reconciled with a holy God? And out of the Reformation, they came these five principles that we mentioned, these five solas, that's Latin, means alone. And these principles, they describe the reform view, really the, the biblical way of answering this question, of understanding how we can be made right with God. And these principles, these are not going to be new <clears throat> to anyone in this church, because I say these every sermon, right? I mention these every sermon that I preach, these principles. We are made right with God. We are saved. We are justified by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, all for the glory of God alone. And the way we know this, we know this is by Scripture alone. And that's what we're going to talk about today. Our ultimate source of authority is Scripture, Scripture alone. So that's what we're going to be looking at today. Matthew chapter 3, starting in verse 16. Brothers and sisters, hear now the word of the living God. And when Jesus was baptized, immediately he went up from the water. And behold, the heavens were opened to him. And he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and coming to rest on him. And behold, a voice from heaven said, This is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. Then Jesus was led by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. And after fasting forty days and forty nights, he was hungry. And the tempter came to him and said to him, If you are the Son of God, command these stones to become loaves of bread. 
But Jesus answered him, It is written, Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. Then the devil took him to the holy city and set him on the pinnacle of the temple and said to him, If you are the Son of God, throw yourself down. For it is written, He will command his angels concerning you. And of their hands they will bear you up, lest you strike your foot against a stone. Jesus again said to him, Jesus said to him, again it is written, you shall not put the Lord your God to a test. Again, the devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their glory. And he said to him, all these I will give to you if you will fall down and worship me. Then Jesus said to him, be gone, Satan, for it is written, you shall worship the Lord your God and him only shall you serve. Then the devil left him, and behold, angels came and were ministering to him. Let's pray. Father, as we come before your word, Lord, your word, sola scriptura, our final authority, we need your spirit. We need your Holy Spirit to clear our minds. I need your Holy Spirit that I will preach only your truth for your glory. So, Father, I pray that you open our hearts, open our minds to hear from you now, that we will see you, we will have an encounter with you. We will be changed. Each one of us will be transformed more into the image of your Son, Jesus Christ. And it's for his glory and in his name we pray. Amen. So it was April of 1521. Martin Luther stood before this imperial assembly of the Holy Roman Empire in Worms, Germany. And he was accused of heresy. This was a capital offense. His life was on the line. And before him was about 25 of the books and, and, and things that he had written. And these were considered heretical by the Roman Catholic Church and the Holy Roman Empire. And here he is facing the possibility of execution. And Luther is given an opportunity, an opportunity to recant, to, to deny what he taught, to agree with the, the, the Catholic Church that it was heretical. And Luther responds with these famous words. Luther says, Unless I am convinced by the testimony of the scriptures or by clear reason, for I do not trust either in the Pope or in councils alone, since it is well known that they have often erred and contradicted themselves. I am bound by the scriptures I have quoted, and my conscience is captive to the word of God. I cannot and I will not recant anything, since it is neither safe nor right to go against conscience. May God help me. Amen. And here he is with his very life on the line. Luther stands on Scripture. Scripture alone. Not the church's teaching, not the word of the Pope. Scripture alone. That was his authority. No other human reason. It was Scripture alone. And Scripture, from from the very beginning of our race, from the Garden of Eden, our adversary, the devil, he knows to attack God's word. Right? Genesis 3. Did God really say... You shall not eat of any of the tree in the garden. See, Satan knew. Satan knew if he could get us to doubt God's word, get us to question God's word, then it is game over. Then he has us. My friend, Satan does the same thing to us today. Satan tells us you cannot trust God's word. Uh, That scripture is simply the the ancient people, a primitive society trying to make sense of their their world. They didn't have our scientific understanding. They weren't as sophisticated as us. They weren't as enlightened as us. My friends, I've heard people in the church actually say those very words. Well, in today's reading, we see Scripture alone in action. 
we see our Lord. Our Lord at this crucial point in his ministry, not relying on the testimony of rabbis or, or teachers or, or scholars, or even on his own divine authority as the Son of God, but rather relying on Scripture alone. In this passage, it makes clear, it's, it's, it's a clear illustration, it's a clear illustration of sola scriptura. So let me just give a, a little bit of background of what we're looking at. So we started here in, in the baptism, Jesus' baptism. This is, the, this, is, this is significant. This is in all four Gospels. And this is really where Jesus' earthly ministry begins. See, Jesus is the new Adam. See, he is the new Adam. Jesus must succeed where Adam fell, where Adam and Eve fell, where they were given this test, they failed. Jesus, as the new Adam, must succeed. And as such, Jesus faces this temptation as a man. It's important for us to understand. He is our representative in this temptation. He is our example. So he's not facing this temptation as God. As a, he's not using his divine prerogative. He's not using the power of his divinity. We know God cannot be tempted, James 1.13. God does not get hungry. Satan would be no challenge to Christ and his deity. But Satan is challenging Christ as a man. And as a man, he is a challenge. And as the new Adam, Christ's temptation, we see parallels the temptation of Adam and Eve. And Satan's strategy, Satan does not change. His strategy is exactly the same as it was with Adam in Genesis 3. He attacks God's word. Did God really say, did God actually say, you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? Same thing, he says, if you are the son of God. If you are the son of God. God's own words at the baptism, this is my beloved son, with whom I am well pleased. Satan here is directly attacking God's word, challenging God's word. <clears throat> and see, Satan is a deceiver. He knows in order to deceive us, he must separate us from reality. And he knows that God's word is reality. And Satan uses the same strategy today. He separates us from reality reality from God's word. We see this in things like same-sex marriage, divorce, abortion, evolution, transgenderism. All of this removes us from the reality of God's word. What We're tethered to God's word. And do you ever wonder, did you ever wonder why it seems the world has gone crazy? Why people believe just the most bizarre things? It's because we have jettisoned God's word. We are now out of touch with God's reality, with God's world. See, God's word is the thing that binds us to reality. It tethers us to the real world. And when we discard it, we are now lost. We have no more contact with the real world. And in this temptation narrative, we see Jesus completely shuts down Satan. He shuts down Satan using God's word. Jesus renders Satan impotent, completely foils his diabolical strategy. And again, he does it using God's word. He does it using scripture alone. That is what we see. And you know what the really cool thing is? The, the awesome thing is we can do this the same. We can do it the same. It is completely in our power. See, Jesus here, he is our representative. There's no doubt about it. He is doing where we failed. But he also shows us as an example. He demonstrates how we too can definitively shut down Satan. There's only one way. It's using Scripture alone. Scripture alone, sola scriptura. So how does Jesus' reaction display sola scriptura? What, what practical benefits is this provided? What, what principles can we glean from this, from this encounter? Well, the first thing we see, first point is we see, is that Scripture settles it. Scripture settles it. 
See, this passage, Scripture settles it. When Jesus says, it is written, the debate ends. There's no more discussion. It is written. Look at verses 3 and verses 4 of chapter 4. It says, And the tempter came to him and said, If you are the Son of God, questioning his, uh, his God's word, command these stones to become bread. But Jesus answered him, It is written, Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. See, it is written. Jesus appeals here to Scripture. And that settles it. It's end of debate. Scripture is the final authority. And notice that, notice that Jesus doesn't say, you know, well, according to tradition, according to the rabbis, according to Gamiel or, or the high priest. No. It's according to God's word. It is written. See, for Jesus and, and for Satan, because Satan didn't argue the point, the Scripture alone is the final authority. See, Solo Scriptura is not invented by the Reformers. It was not invented by Martin Luther. We see it right here, used by Jesus himself. And not only does Jesus appeal to Scripture to rebuke uh, Satan's temptation, but even the very Scripture Jesus uses completely undermines Satan's strategy and reinforces the doctrine of Solo Scriptura. See, Jesus could have used many. There's many passages he could have used to rebuke this temptation. But look at this verse specifically that he uses to disarm the tempter. And it causes him really to completely abandon the strategy. Satan comes with a completely new tactic in the second temptation. And this verse is from Deuteronomy. As a matter of fact, all of them that he, that he quotes are from Deuteronomy. This is Deuteronomy 8.3, which says, Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. And with this verse, what Jesus is saying is, I'm not falling into your trap, Satan. Jesus makes it clear to Satan that he knows that life, where life comes from and where it doesn't come from. It doesn't come from physical food alone, but it comes from God's word. So let me just read the context of Deuteronomy 8. So I'm going to read just verses 2 and 3. Deuteronomy 8, starting verse 2, it says, And you shall remember, this is Moses speaking to the Israelites in, in the desert, and you shall remember the whole way that the Lord your God has led you these 40 years in the wilderness, that he might humble you, testing you to know what was in your heart, whether you would keep his commandments or not. And he humbled you and let you hunger and fed you with manna, which you did not know, nor did your fathers know, that he might make you know that man does not live by bread alone, but man lives by every word that comes from the mouth of the Lord. See, in the past, this passage, the Lord is telling the Israelites that he led them into the wilderness as a test to test them. See, he provided for them. He provided for them physically with the manna, and he provided them spiritually with his word. And the people, the only response they had was to trust God, trust that God would provide for them. See, Jesus does not need to take things into his own hands. He doesn't need to turn these, these stones into bread. Rather, all he needs to do is trust God, be faithful, continue to trust in God. And this, this point is really significant. Because what we see happened at this first temptation is something that has never happened before in the history of the world. Satan actually failed in this strategy. Every time he used this strategy before, it worked. I mean, think of the heroes of the faith. Think of, of Abraham and Sarah. Right? God told them, you will have a son. They wait 10 years, they're not having a son, so they take matters into their own hands. So well, maybe, we, maybe it meant we should go to, to, to Hagar and have a son. And that was Ishmael. They took it into their own hands. We're, we're still seeing the results of that today. How about Abraham when he was in Egypt? 
God again says, Sarah and you are going to be a great nation. He had no children at this time. But he's afraid that, that he's going to be killed. So he, he's feared man. He lies. He says that Sarah is his sister. How about King David? King David takes a census. He's relying on his own strength, his own troops, as opposed to God's promises to him. And then again, he completely disobeys God's words by committing adultery and murder. We see this in, in the prophet Elijah. After this amazing battle with the, with the priests of Baal, where God shows how real he is, then he's terrified. Then he's afraid of Jezebel. He's afraid he's going to die. See, again, Jesus succeeds where others have failed. And why does Jesus succeed? Because he knows God's word. He clings to God's word. It is ultimate reality that he clings to. And he knows it's found in God's word alone. So here Jesus is acting not only as our head, not only as our substitute, Jesus is not only fulfilling the law for us where we could not, which he absolutely is doing, we could not do it, but Jesus is also an example to us, an example to believers. See, we too, those of us who are united to Christ uh, by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, we are able to follow this example. So I said Satan uses the same strategy. Satan is going to tell you that sola scriptura is not enough. He's going to tell you that this word is not enough to live your lives. 504 years ago, in the day of Luther, scripture must be supplemented by the church and by councils and the Pope's teaching. And all of this introduced error, introduced other ways of reaching God. Other gospels obscured the real gospel. We see this early in the 20th century during the modernist controversy, where people said, well, Scripture's not reliable. Science has shown us that miracles don't happen. Virgins don't give birth. People don't rise from the dead. So we've got to get rid of all that stuff. There's still good morals in there. We'll keep the morals, but we can't believe what it's taught, what it's taught in Scripture. We, that has to be thrown out. So they tried to keep the morals and get rid of the, get rid of the supernatural. Well, today, they don't even want to keep the morals. Right? Today, if you follow the morals in this book, you are considered misogynistic. You are considered homophobic, racist, hateful. That's what they call you if you follow the morals taught in this book. We even see some churches, some churches who think that the revelation of Scripture are not enough. I need to have a private word from the Lord. The Lord has to give me direct revelation. It's not enough. See, what happens? Once Satan convinces us, deceives us into banding Scripture, it's game over because we have lost our connection with reality. We become delusional. And this is what we see in our modern culture. I mean, just think if, if someone came even from less than 100 years ago and see the things that are going on in, in our culture, right, especially associated with the sexual revolution, but they're in multiple other areas, you know, abortion, same-sex marriage, gender identity, you know, I, I could decide whether I'm a male or a female. I could decide whether I'm an animal. People are lost, completely lost touch with reality. And we've done this because we have lost our connection. This is our connection with reality. Scripture alone connects us with God's world. So just as, as Jesus did, we need to cling to Scripture. We need to cling to it is written when resisting all these modern temptations that are going to come to every single one of us in this room. So Jesus completely shuts down Satan's strategy. So Satan then tries a different tactic. We see a different tactic here. So he can't, he can't get Jesus to abandon Scripture. So what he does is he attempts to corrupt Scripture. And that's our second point that we see here. Scripture can be misused. Yes, Scripture is our connection with reality, but that doesn't mean that we always use it correctly. And here we see a very clear point where it is misused. This is our, this is our second point. Scripture can be misused. 
And we see this in, in uh, Satan in his second temptation. Take a look at verses 5 and 6. So the devil took him to a high city and set him on the pinnacle of the temple and said to him, If you are the Son of God, throw yourself down, for it is written, He will command his angels concerning you. And on their hands they will bear you up, lest you strike your foot against a stone. And Jesus said to him, Again it is written, You shall not put the Lord your God to a test. See, here what Satan does is he says, I can use scripture too. I can say it is written too. And sometimes this can be distressing to us. It could. Because it's one thing to be tempted by people who don't believe scripture. And we can bring scripture to the point. But what do we do when people do believe scripture? When people are using scripture. But they use it in a way that's wrong. A way that's different. How Satan is appealing to scripture. And in Jesus' response, we see two critical components of sola scriptura as well as two critical components on actually how we, should re- how we should interpret the Bible. And first of all, before we even start, we need to know two words. These words, exegesis and eisegesis. I'm sure some of you heard. Have you heard those words, exegesis and eisegesis? Exegesis is what hopefully I do every time I preach. It's when you look at the Bible and you say, what, what is this saying? What is this text saying? I'm trying to understand what is here. And then I faithfully communicate that in a sermon. That's exegesis. Then I apply it to us. I'm taking, the scripture sets the direction. It sets the agenda, not me. That's exegesis. We're reading, exit comes out of scripture. But the opposite is eisegesis. You know, if, you know your, if you know your prefixes, eisen means reading in. So basically what I do is I come with already what I want a message to tell you guys. And I flip through this book and I find something that's close and I read into that what I want to say to you. I'm not letting the scripture determine the agenda. I'm determining the agenda. I'm trying to fix, I'm trying to get this idea out. And just to give you an example, I've used this example many times before, but this is, my, this is a very clear example of eisegesis. If I want to, to brag, I want you to think of how great I am, I will use my favorite verse that I've told you, which is Luke 7, 28. Among those born of women, none is greater than John, right? None is greater than John. That is the verse that I can eisegesis and I can tell you I'm the greatest. There's no doubt about it. The Bible it says says it. Or another one that I use, especially when I'm, when I'm talking to my, uh, my vegan daughter about who doesn't want to eat the, her, her hamburger, I can say the Bible, Romans 14.2 says, the weak person eats only vegetables. Again, you see, this is eisegesis. Don't ever do this. <laughs> See, what we do is, 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 is we're reading in, and so many people do this. And the question is, how do we protect ourselves from doing this? Just as important, how do we recognize when someone else is doing this to us? So how do we protect ourselves? Well, the first way we protect ourselves, we need to know this book. We need to know this book really well. We need to know it inside and out. We need to have a working knowledge of it. We need to, we need to know the Old Testament, the New Testament. We need to study it. We need to memorize it. We need to prayerfully meditate on it. We need to sit under expository preaching, which is bringing out what the Word teaches. We need to do Bible study, Sunday school. We need to theology classes. All of these things we need. To, that's why we have all these things here, because that's, this is our first defense. We need to know this book cold. If we don't, we are defenseless. This is the, the sword of the Spirit. This is what we need. But once we know this, once we know the Word really well, then we can apply the two principles that we see that Jesus uses here in this, in this uh, passage. See, Jesus illustrates some, some very important principles of how to rightly interpret Scripture. 
And Jesus masterfully uses these principles really to expose and, and to, to refute Satan's misuse of Scripture. And we see these two principles in Jesus' response to the second temptation. And the first principle is context. Context is king. You need to look at the context. Just like when I was looking at, you know, uh, of those born of women, there's none greater than John. If you know that context, he's talking about John the Baptist. He's not talking about John Albano. He's talking about John the Baptist. If you know the context, and the same thing if you knew the context about the, he who is weak eats only vegetables, you will realize that, that I am brutally mistreating that scripture. So that's the first thing. We need to know context is king. And Jesus here recognized what Satan is doing. Satan is doing eisegesis. Satan has a sinister motive. He's reading into the text. And we, we can see that Jesus recognizes by the selection of the verse that Jesus uses to rebuke Satan. He says, you shall not put the Lord your God to the test. And see, this is exactly what Satan was doing. Satan was actually putting God to the test. Satan's motivation, see, when, he, when he's quoting the scripture, his motivation is not to understand what the scripture is saying, not to submit to the scripture. He's using it to trick Jesus. He's using it to, to, to trap Jesus, to get Jesus to sin, to basically get Jesus to, to forfeit being our Savior. That's what he's trying to do. He's trying to get Jesus to put God to the test. And Jesus knew that Satan was misusing the scripture because he knew scripture. And he knew that Satan was ignoring the context. Right, just as I did with the, with the Luke passage and the, uh, and the 1 Corinthians passage. And the principle here is that context, context, context. Context is king. So this passage that, that Satan was quoting from, this comes from Psalm 91. And if you know Psalm 91, Psalm 91 is a beautiful psalm about the person who trusts in God. Psalm 91 starts, it says, He who dwells in the shelter of the Most High will abide in the shadow of the Almighty. I will say to the Lord, my refuge and my fortress, my God in whom I trust. And there's so much there. It's, it's talking about how he's going to cover you with his wings uh, like, like, like a bird covering you. You're not going to have to worry about the, the, the pestilence of a, of a darkness or the destruction of noonday. Even though a thousand fall at your side, you are protected. That's what it's telling you here. It's telling that if you trust in the Lord, the Lord will, tr- will protect you. In verse 11, this is what Satan Quoted 11 and 12, he says, For he will command his angels concerning you to guard you in all your ways. On their hands they will bear you up, lest you strike your foot against a stone. See, they're, 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 he's saying this to give us confidence that God will, we're secure in God. He will protect us if we slip. And we'll slip, we don't have to try to slip purposely. We will slip all, all on our own. It's real easy. I can tell you, I do it all the time. I'm wanting to do the right thing, and I fall away. And thankfully, God will just gently bring us back. So this, this passage is clearly geared towards those who are trusting in God. So you can see, it's talking about the person who submits to God. It's the person who trusts God. And if the person trusts God, he's going to follow his commands. And this psalm, again, provides comfort for those who are trusting God that we won't get hurt. But you see what Satan does? He completely twists it. He turns it around. He's using this now as a way to challenge God, for challenging God to prove that we can believe him, to prove that he is trustworthy, to put God to the test. And this is not done from belief. It's done from unbelief. It's the exact opposite of the context of this psalm. He's interpreting exactly opposite of how it's intended. And Satan has taken this verse out of context. And Jesus knows the correct uh, context. And his response to Jesus exposes Satan's misuse of Scripture. And this, again, is the first principle. This is context 
is king. Jesus exposes that he is misusing scripture. But the second principle of this, interp- of this temptation that we see here is scripture interprets scripture. See, in, in case of Psalm 91, it's pretty clear that this doesn't support Satan's usage. But, but some, some passages are not quite as clear. Some passages are, are ambiguous. We may not understand what they're saying. And in that case, we have to apply the second principle. We have to compare scripture with scripture. See, we understand that this whole book is written with one voice. It has one message. It has one author. Even though there's 66 books written by dozens of different authors, they are of one voice. It has one, one message. And so places where Scripture play, speaks more clearly, we use those to interpret the other passages. And that's where something's ambiguous. If we, if we think it says this, and something that's clear says this, we know that this must be wrong especially if these two contradict each other. We use what is clear to interpret what is not clear, not the other way around. So this is what we see Jesus doing in his response, and it's written in response to Satan's twisting of of Scripture. Now look at verse 7. Jesus said to him, Again it was written, You shall not put the Lord your God to the test. And here Jesus is quoting from Deuteronomy 6.16. I'm going to read that that whole verse. It says, you shall not put the Lord your God to the test as you tested him at Massa. Now, the second part is important. As you tested him at Massa. See, this is significant of what's going on here. Because this is a reference. Again, this is why you need to know your Bible so well. This is a reference to Exodus 17, 1 through 7. And this is where the, the Israelites grumbled against the Lord. They accused Moses. They accused the Lord of taking him out of Egypt only to let them die in the wilderness. And the sin here is that the people did not trust God. They did not take him in his word. They did not believe that he would do what he promised to do. He promised to, to deliver them to the promised land, to a, to a land flowing with milk and honey. And what they did is they demanded physical proof every step of the way or they wouldn't believe God. If they didn't get and physical proof on their own terms when they wanted it or they wouldn't believe. Now, God had given them proof. He had sent the plagues, the amazing plagues on Egypt. He had split the Red Sea. He had provided them manna so that they had something to eat, but that wasn't enough. They wanted him to prove on their terms. Maybe a good illustration. So, you know, those of you who are parents, say you, you promised to, to buy your, your, your child a bike. And you say, I'm going to get you a bike for your birthday. And the child, instead of saying, thank you, Dad, says, I want to see, I want to see your bank account. I want to make sure you have enough money to buy this, ba- this bike. I want, you, I want to actually see that you're looking at it. I don't trust that you're going to do it. I don't believe you at your word. Do you see how insulting that would be to you as a parent? You'd probably slap him, so you're not going to get anything from me. But no, this is what we do to God. Satan is putting God to the test in the second temptation. And this temptation is for Jesus to prove that he can be trusted, to prove that God can be trusted. And what this does, and this is really significant here, is that it shifts our standard of, God's, uh, of belief from God's truthfulness to our personal experience. Instead of believing, if Scripture says it, I believe it, it's if I experience it, if I confirm it, then I will believe it. And this shift is subtle, but it's significant. See, by making this shift, the standard for evaluating reality goes from God, goes from God's Word, and it comes to us. We determine what reality is. It's true, not because God said it. It's true because I confirmed it with my own eyes. I am the, I am the one who determines what is reality. And this is exactly what the Israelites were doing in Exodus 17. 
See, they refused to believe God unless they experienced the promises firsthand with their own senses and on their own terms. And this is huge. See, God goes from being the standard of truth to man being the standard of truth. That's what we do. That is what the fall is. And again, when this happens, it's game over. And that's what we see in our society now. Man is the standard of truth, not God's word. We have abandoned reality. The reality of God's word has has really, we've entered a a fantasy world where we can determine reality. Right? I can determine, I think I'm a girl, not a boy. We have people who can do that. I can determine I'm a dog or a cat or anything in between. It's saying, I am God. It's saying, I could determine reality. It's nonsense. It is not real. But people believe this because they have been, they have been separated from God's word. But Jesus immediately recognized what Satan is attempting to do. And he rebukes him using um, Deuteronomy 6, 16. You shall not put the Lord your God to the test. So this, this scripture here explicitly condemns Satan's misuse of scripture. And it provides a clear illustration of sola scriptura and a clear illustration of the principles of interpreting scripture. So, so far we've seen sola scriptura illustrating the fact that scripture settles the argument. We've also seen sola scriptura that how scripture can be misused and we must take the context into account. And we must compare a verse with uh, the rest of scripture. We must uh, compare scripture against scripture to have a correct interpretation. However, however, it's impossible to believe all this. It's possible to have a high view of scripture. It's possible even to hold scripture is completely without error and still miss, still miss the most important point of sola scriptura. And that's our third point. The most important point of sola scriptura is that scripture points beyond itself. Scripture points beyond itself. See, Scripture is not an end in itself. Scripture is a vehicle. Scripture is a vehicle that points to God. It points us to God. It points to Christ. It exalts Christ. It exalts God. And ultimately, ultimately, Scripture must lead us to worship. If this doesn't happen, no matter what you believe, it will not do you any good. If Scripture does not lead you to worship, it's really no good for you. Let's look at this last temptation, starting in verse 8. It says, again, the devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their glory. And he said to him, all these I will give to you if you fall down and worship me. Then Jesus said to him, be gone, Satan, for it is written, you shall worship the Lord your God and him only shall you serve. Then the devil left him and behold, the angels came and were ministering to him. See, in this last temptation, Satan offers Jesus all the kingdoms of the world. He offers him all the glory in the world. Ultimate worldly satisfaction. All, I mean, just think of it. Let's kind of put it in perspective. All of us have goals, right? All of us have things we want to do, things we're working toward. We want to have success in our field. We want to have notoriety. We want to have fame and fortune or comfort. Or maybe it's as simple as a new car or a new house. A relation. We want to be married if we're not married. We want, we want people to think well of us. We all have a goal. You name the goal, the worldly goal, this is what Satan is offering to Jesus. Pretty much any worldly goal, the devil is saying to Jesus, you can have it. I can give it to you. I have power over this, and I can give it to you. And I can just imagine, if I was in, if I was in Jesus' situation, I attempted to say, well, I've done it. I've resisted the devil. I've relied on Scripture. Now is my reward. Now is my payday. Everything I could ever want is given to me. And my friends, there are churches 
There are churches that teach the Bible as God's word. And if you follow these rules, they say God will bless you materially. You'll have some smiley preacher who will tell you that God wants you to have your best life now. He wants you to have great relationships. He wants you to be healthy and wealthy and, and have everything. If you just have enough faith, look at us. You could be, be pretty people like we are. But what the smiley preachers don't tell you is, yes, you can have all these things, but it comes at a cost. It comes at a very high cost. The cost is you have to bow down and worship Satan. That's the condition. Now, of course, it's not overt. You know, it's not you know, goats and cutting and blood and, and 666 and pentagrams. No, no. You have to worship the worldly system that Satan is behind based on materialism, based on greed, based on consumption, based on self absorption. It's when we say, God, you're not enough. I need more. And all of this comes at a price, a price of worshiping the prince of the power of the air who controls the world. And the sad thing is that there are many people, many, many people who think they're Christians. Many people who read their Bible, who maybe even would agree with Sola Scriptura if they, if they understood what it was, but they're worshiping the devil. These people are heading to hell. In John 5, 39 to 40, Jesus says to the Pharisees, he says, you search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life and it is they that bear witness about me. But you refuse to come to me that you may have life. See, the Pharisees, they had the scriptures. They even believed the scriptures. They believed that the scriptures would give them life. But they completely missed the point of the scriptures. The scriptures pointed to Jesus. All of Scripture is about Jesus. This is what Jesus himself said on the road to Emmaus, to the disciples. He said, it's all about me. All Scripture is about Christ. It all points to him. And if we miss this point, we might as well not even have the Scripture. If you miss that this is all about Christ, you might as well not even read it. It will do you no good. And look at what we see in Jesus' response to this final temptation. First of all, he sharply rebukes the devil. Be gone, Satan. And then Jesus responds by quoting Deuteronomy 6.13. You shall worship the Lord your God, and him only shall you serve. See, Jesus is using Scripture to show reality. He's telling Satan, Satan, you got it all wrong. You got it all wrong. The ultimate purpose of life is not stuff. It's not being a pretty person. It's not being popular. It's not being, being happy, healthy, and wise. It's not about power. It's not about this world. The ultimate purpose for all human beings the purpose for which we were created does not lie in this world. It does not lie in the power of self-actualization or self-realization. As a matter of fact, the focus has nothing to do with us. We must decrease. He must increase. And in fact, if we seek these things, we will completely miss the only thing that really matters. And that is our ultimate purpose. Our ultimate purpose, the reason for which we were created, as we said, to glorify God and enjoy Him forever. But the ultimate purpose is to worship God. And as this verse says, you shall worship the Lord your God and him only shall you serve. See, my friends, worship, this is our destination. Sola Scriptura is simply a means to get there. It's an essential means. Without Sola Scriptura, we're not going to get there. But never make the mistake of thinking Sola Scriptura is the destination. This is fatal. This is eternally fatal. So this is the first of the solas. This settles our source of authority, our foundational authority. This is our connection with reality. And it's foundational to all the other solas. 
but as a doctrine. It is not sufficient to take us to our destination, which is worship, which is eternal worship. See, the truth is that in our natural state, we cannot worship God. We cannot fulfill our ultimate purpose. We cannot glorify God unless, unless we are born again, unless we are transformed from one who is spiritually dead to someone who is spiritually alive. And this transformation is by the gospel. What was discovered, what was rediscovered by Martin Luther 504 years ago, it is by grace alone, sola gratia, gratia, not by human works, not by good deeds. And this grace, this grace is not delivered through a complex sacramental system. It's not metered out by the church. It can only be received. And it is received, it becomes ours by faith alone, sola fide. And this faith, this faith does not merit salvation. It's not faith in faith. It's not the strength of our faith that counts. It is the object of our faith that counts. And that object is the Lord Jesus Christ himself. Solus Christos. See, we are accepted by God solely by the merits of Jesus Christ. Christ alone. His perfect life is credited to us. And his vicarious death in which we died. This is the atonement. This is the propitiation. This absorbs the wrath of God against our sins. And because of this, grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, we become beloved children of God. And then, then and only then, can we become what we're meant to be. Only then can we fulfill the ultimate purpose for which we are created. Only then can we experience true joy, true happiness, true peace, true fulfillment. And when we are in communion with the triune God, and we are ascribing to him all praise, all honor, all glory, and authentic Holy Spirit-filled worship, only then, my friends, only then are we freed from this addiction to worldliness, this addiction to self. Only then will we cry out with all the saints, Sole Deo Gloria, to God alone be the glory. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we do admit that we are out of touch with reality. And we are out of touch with reality because we ignore your word. We ignore the firm foundation of your word. And you've given it to us. And Father, we repent of that. And I pray for every single one, every single one who hears my voice now. If any have not been born again, by grace alone, through faith alone, in Jesus Christ alone, that that will change at this moment. That you will open our hearts just like you opened Luther's heart and mind to this beautiful reality. And Father, for those of us who do know you, Lord, strengthen our faith in you. Strengthen our reliance upon you. And give us boldness to go out and proclaim this. This world hates this. This world will hate us for proclaiming this. But Father, we are captive to your word, just like Luther. We are captive to your word. So help us as we go and do this. We pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen.